Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Just before we start, if you enjoy Forgotten Australia, make sure you get every episode as soon as it's released by clicking subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts. It's just after two in the afternoon, Monday the 19th of June, 1922, 100 years ago this week, and at Haymarket Theatre in Sydney, Australia's newest celebrity is about to meet her adoring public and be scared out of her wits by them. Eve Grey is 21 years old, stands about 5'5", is slender, with grey-blue eyes and lovely golden curls. Eve is a knockout. Not only a knockout, but the knockout of all knockouts, and that's official. Recently, after more than 2,000 girls and women from all over Australia entered a beauty competition staged by Sydney's The Evening News, a judging panel of expert gentleman artists declared that Eve Grey was indeed the fairest of them all. Her winning photo and other portraits have appeared in the evening news and in other newspapers all across the country. Overnight, Eve Grey has become a household name and the face of Australian beauty. Interest in her has been intense. Newspapers have interviewed this young stage performer about her background, her brief career in the footlights and her ambitions to be a serious actress. Being hailed as Australia's most beautiful girl has seen people snap up tickets to get a look at Eve in her latest show. People also crowd around the city photographic studio that displays her winning portrait in its window. Now, this Monday afternoon, fans are crammed into the Haymarket Theatre on Lower George Street. The occasion? Eve's about to introduce a short film of herself. It's only going to be a few flickering moments of her striking a few poses. But the promise of that little film, in addition to the unremarkable main feature, has been enough to fill all 1,600 seats. And thousands more who couldn't get in are thronging George Street in the hope of getting a fleeting glimpse. 
these people are swaying and jostling outside the theatre doors. Suddenly, the atmosphere is electric, because here she comes. When Eve arrives outside the theatre, any excitement she feels quickly turns to terror when she's rushed. Everyone's calling her name, cheering, trying to get closer and closer. To save Eve from being crushed, a burly man picks her up and carries her aloft through the crowd. Inside the theatre, she's taken to the stage. Gazing out is to behold a sea of strangers who all know her name, her face and her body. It's fair to say that every single one of them is now sitting in judgement. Is Eve Grey really that beautiful? It does seem she's a hit with this crowd because they're cheering, excited beyond belief at seeing a girl who, a few weeks ago, any of them might have passed in a city street without much more than a second glance. On stage, Eve, recently not at all famous, now the most talked of girl in Australia, realises a bitter truth. She's no longer Eve Grey, private citizen. She's Eve Grey, public property. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part one of the two-part Forgotten Australia episode, More Than Australia's Most Beautiful Girl. Part two will be on release later this week, but it's available now to Patreon supporters. At Patreon, you'll also find an extensive photo gallery to go with this episode. Becoming a supporter helps me pay for research materials to ensure that no stone's left unturned when making these episodes. Supporting Forgotten Australia costs about the same as a cup of coffee a month, and as a thank you, you'll get a show shout-out, early ad-free access to episodes, exclusive bonus shows, and the audiobook of Australia's Sweetheart, which, if you love stories of Forgotten Australian celebrities, will be right up your alley. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, and this link's also in your show notes. A big thank you shout-out to recent Patreon supporters, Rod Quinn, Rach, Scott Raymond, Len Zorn, Jim Wallace and Mary Bond. Cheers guys, I really appreciate it. Eve Grey, like so many Forgotten Australia stories, came to me as a matter of luck. Earlier this year, you might remember I did an episode about the 1922 shark attacks. When I was researching that, I saw Eve Grey's face staring out at me from a cosmetics advertisement. It claimed she was Australia's most beautiful girl. She was certainly good looking, pretty much the ideal of the early 1920s, and I wondered who she was. Delving into Trove, I quickly realised that Eve's rise to fame had been meteoric. But what really surprised and delighted me was that she was no flash in the pan. These days we're used to that curious phenomenon where we Australians adopt foreign-born actors and actresses as our own. Nicole Kidman, Naomi Watts, Mel Gibson, Russell Crowe, Guy Pearce and Isla Fisher, among others, all started their lives in other countries. While they grew up and got their starts down under, they then went off and became really big stars overseas. Well, we might think of Eve Grey as the prototype for this. A century ago, this English-born girl who'd been raised in Australia was suddenly thrust into the spotlight in Sydney. Her beauty competition and her stage experiences were like her version of doing Neighbours or Home and Away, a stepping stone to much bigger things. What also makes Eve's story as fresh today as it was 100 years ago is that she was initially celebrated more for her looks than for her talent. But Eve had real abilities and these saw her carve out a substantial career on stage and on screen. 
Who played the featured blonde murder victim in Alfred Hitchcock's first psycho-thriller? Who starred in the first film adaptation of an Agatha Christie novel? Who was leading lady in the film Moulin Rouge some 70 years before our Nicole Kidman? Who was Errol Flynn's first leading lady? Four questions, all with the same answer. Eve Grey. Eve Grey wasn't always Eve Grey. She was born Fanny Evelyn Garrett in Handsworth, a suburb of Birmingham in England, on the 27th of November 1900. Just over a month later, on the 1st of January 1901, after more than a century as a collection of colonies, Australia became a federated nation. And three weeks after that, Queen Victoria died after reigning for 63 years. So Fanny Evelyn Garrett had been born into a rapidly changing world. The little girl, who'd go by the nickname Sissy and later the stage name Eve Grey, had a sister, Margaret, known as Madge, who was two years older. UK census records at Ancestry.com.au reveal that the girls didn't seem to enjoy social privilege. Their father, George, was a butcher's manager, having worked his way up from an apprenticeship. It was likely that their modest financial circumstances led them to seek new lives in Australia. At this time, New South Wales and other states were encouraging white British migration. Farmhands and domestic servants were especially needed. Britons could apply to Australian government agencies in London to qualify as migrants, or they could be nominated by family or friends who were already living down under. This was a forerunner to the better-known £10 POM-assisted migration program of the mid-20th century. In 1912, British migrants paid about £6 for their third-class fares on steamers that had been chartered by Australian governments. They were also required to lodge a small deposit of between £2 and £6. This would then be returned to them in Australia, so they were guaranteed to enter the country with at least a little money. On the 16th of July 1912, George Garrett, his wife, who was also named Fanny, and their daughters Madge, now 13, and Eve, 11, set sail for Sydney from Liverpool aboard the SS Waimana. Their little family group, which included George's brother Thomas and his wife, were among around 1,000 English, Scottish, Welsh, and Irish immigrants. George Garrett was listed as a farmhand, while his brother Thomas was listed as a farmer. Did they feel apprehensive about leaving England behind? I'd guess they did, but perhaps not only because they couldn't be sure of what to expect in Sydney. Waimana was a new steamer recently launched by the White Star Line, and just three months ago, another of the company's ships, Titanic, had gone down in the Atlantic while taking many people just like the Garretts to new lives in New York. While Waimana was going in a different direction, the voyage, which would see them go around the Cape of Good Hope and across the Great Southern Ocean, wasn't without its risks. The ship that would be called Australia's Titanic, the SS Waratah, had disappeared without trace off the coast of South Africa in July 1909 with the loss of all 211 people aboard. Indeed, Waimana encountered fierce weather and big seas while sailing east from the Cape. Yet, the Newcastle Morning Herald reckoned that the sturdy immigrants aboard had treated the buffeting like a joke, especially the kids. Quote, the children absolutely reveling in the acrobatic performances of the ship. Apart from an infant who died of pneumonia on the voyage, everyone aboard Waimana arrived safe and sound in Sydney on the 29th of August 1912. 
Waimana's arrival was actually big news. That was because it came into Sydney on the same day as two other steamers bringing immigrants. So on a single day, the state's population had increased by nearly 2,400 people. It was a massive amount. In all of 1911, there'd only been 10,000 such arrivals. There was debate about whether opportunities were being provided for these new Australians. But the Immigration Bureau insisted that most of them had places to go. Some stayed with relatives, and many others were snapped up by pastoralists and householders, the men taken on as farmhands and the women put into domestic service. The pay wasn't great. A man might expect one pound per week, but conditions included food and board, so the new arrivals wouldn't be a drain on the state. Yet the manager of Sydney's Central Methodist Mission Home disputed this rosy view. He was in a position to know because the mission provided what became more than just stopgap accommodation for immigrants who slipped through the cracks. He said that some had been deluded into thinking they were going to find gold in Australia or land highly paid jobs. Instead, they didn't find work, lost all hope and wanted to go back home. I mention this because for most new arrivals, their new lives appeared to be challenging. As for Eve and her family... The only record we have is her much later recollection, which reads as if remembered through rose-coloured glasses. Eve would tell the Sydney Mail in 1929, quote, What a shock it was to me when I first landed in Sydney. I had read all the stories of Australia I could lay my hands on, revelling in bushrangers and blackfellas. And at the sight of the orderly streets with rows of houses, I just howled and howled and refused to be comforted until we had left the city behind and were well on our way up country. Eve continued, My father had acquired a sheep run near Bathurst and I was literally turned loose with the shaky-legged lambs. I seldom wore more than a bathing suit and I wandered where I liked, which at first was not very far. No restrictions were imposed upon me, no school, no fixed hours for anything. I lived like a little wild thing with sheep, horses and dogs as my constant companions. In less than two years, I had become hardened enough to go boundary riding. For the brief five years that it lasted, it was a joyous, carefree existence. But bad times forced us to sell out and I was sent to business school in the city to learn shorthand and typing. In more contemporary reports about Eve when she became famous, there were no references whatsoever to her Bathurst background and nor did Bathurst papers clamour to claim her, which such regional publications almost always did if the son or daughter of a well-known local suddenly became someone of note. So Eve's father may have come out to Australia with sufficient means to buy a sheep run. But it's also possible that he, like most men on Waimana who were listed as farmhands, was scooped up by a grazier and put to work for a pound a week plus food and board for him and his family. Eve Grey may not have wanted to admit her humble origins. Anyway, her 1929 account of her transition from farm girl to business school continued, quote, I hated the sight of notebooks and carbon paper. My heart was still centred on my earliest daydreams, and in my own mind, I was a famous dancer. And now that I was strong, I could not see why these dreams should not be realised. I regret to say that many times when I came home and told how well I was getting on at the school, I had actually spent the evening hanging round stage doors, trying to catch a glimpse of my favourite actress going inside. Again, this may have been selective recollection. 
Contemporary reports were to say that the Garretts had settled in Coogee and Eve, in her teenage years, was a striking beauty who, while she may have been a business girl, was also a commercial model, sketched by artists for advertisements and likely occasionally photographed for the same purpose. As for her hanging around stage doors, Eve had reportedly gotten a job on the staff of the Green Room magazine. This publication was edited by Lewis Parks, formerly a publicity man for Hugh D. McIntosh. We've encountered Mr. McIntosh in several episodes previously. He went by the nickname Huge Deal, and he was a larger-than-life impresario, promoter, entrepreneur, and newspaper mogul. So Lewis Parks would have had plenty of access to the theatrical world via his old boss. The green room was filled with stories about the stage and screen, local and international. Like any self-respecting publisher back then, Lewis Parks also had an eye for publicity stunts, such as his 1917 competition to decide who had the most shapely legs on the Australian stage. The entrance photos, judged by the artist Lionel Lindsay and his more famous brother, Norman. Working for the green room, Eve's job was to write paragraphs about actors and actresses. As Sydney's The Sun was to say, these stars, quote, at that time seemed to her creatures who trod the paths of glory. Young Eve Grey wrote good copy, and her editor was sad to see her leave around mid-1919. But leave she had to, because Eve had landed a stage role. She was on her way to tread those paths of glory herself. Eve was to say her dad didn't really want her to chase the dream. Quote, when my father discovered my secret ambitions, he decided to let me have my way, being quite sure that a taste of hard work would soon cure me of wanting to be a dancer. Eve got her break as a chorus girl in a show called Town Talk at Brisbane's Cremorne Theatre. The production had a good run, but when Eve made the papers, it wasn't in a review. Rather, it was because she'd placed a little classified notice seeking the return of an envelope containing three pounds that she'd lost on a Friday night at the theatre. Chances are, those three pounds were her weekly wage. But while Eve hadn't been noticed by critics, she had been spotted by a man who was working in Brisbane for huge deal. The boss had ordered him to keep an eye out for pretty girls, and Eve certainly fit that bill. The man sent a message to Sydney and Huge Deal okayed an offer and a contract. Eve was to be one of eight pretty dancing girls featured in a new Sydney review called Bran Pie, staged at the Tivoli from May of 1920. After three weeks in the chorus, Eve was given a special dance, which came towards the end of the show, where she waltzed around the stage with a partner. Bran Pie toured the other states, and Eve's dance was singled out in Adelaide by the journal as being deliciously done. Next, at the Tivoli in November in 1920 in Sydney, Eve was one of another eight dancers in a show called The Girl for the Boy. The Sunday Times reported that Eve and her co-stars were specially trained and selected, and all were good enough to be featured as solo dancers. Quote, To bend backwards and touch the ground with the head is a simple feat as a rule. But done slowly and gracefully, in time to soft music, it is a different matter altogether. This was the sort of hard work that Eve's dad had thought would put her off, but no such luck. The Girl for the Boy was another hit. Around this time, Eve was announced as the Girl for the Boy in another capacity. She was engaged to a daring young aviator named Alex McNaughton. This pilot was quite the catch. He was the son of Brisbane's esteemed Mr. Justice McNaughton, 
and Alex himself was a bit of a hero. In the Great War, he'd been a flight commander with the Australian Flying Corps' Number 1 Squadron and seen active service in Palestine. Now, he was following his dad into the law. But alas, Eve would not prove the girl for this boy. What happened after that engagement announcement isn't known, but Alex was to marry another woman a few years later. After Huge Deal's company amalgamated with J.C. Williamson, Australia's leading theatrical outfit, Eve appeared in their next touring hit, which was called The Little Whopper. This show got her out of the chorus. Eve and another girl were featured in three charming song and dance numbers. Reviewers noted her roguish stage presence, particularly in a pyjama ballet called Let It Be Soon. And maybe that's what Eve was thinking at this time about stardom. Let it be soon. After all, she'd been working on stage for a few years now. As good as it was that her talents were being noticed, Eve was still little more than a pretty bit player whose name was found at the bottom of theatrical bills. Sydney's referee newspaper in July 1921 called her quote, pretty as a posy, which can't have been lost on anyone in the audience. The same paper three months later said, quote, I doubt if there is a prettier girl on the Sydney stage just now than Eve Grey. The following month, her appearance in a show called Theodore & Co. led to her portrait being published in the Sunday Times and in the Sydney Mail, with the latter noting that she was a distinct hit in this production. By the end of 1921, a newspaper ad for collionated coconut oil listed all the famous theatrical celebrities who swore by this stuff. Top of the pile was Miss Gladys Moncrief, then outside of Dame Nellie Melba, Australia's most famous singer. After Gladys came the list of another 17 pretty misses who used the coconut oil. Then, lucky last, was Miss Eve Grey. So she was the most junior of coconut oil celebrities. I guess it was better than not being on the list. In March 1922, Eve was in the cast of J.C. Williamson's A Night Out, which was staged at Her Majesty's in Melbourne. Eve had been elevated to being a regular in J.C.W.'s musical comedy company, along with then big names like Maud Fain, Alfred Frith, Henry Wooten and Cecil Calloway. Watching A Night Out in Melbourne, a playgoer had an idea and this person wrote to J.C. Williamson's management. He suggested a beauty competition be held in connection with the show because so many of the girls were so, so pretty. When a little article about this suggestion appeared in the newspapers, it was accompanied by a report that visiting American movie and stage star Louis Benison had also been struck by the stunners in a night out. Benison had said, quote, I have never seen a more beautiful lot of girls in any part of the world, even in New York. Such reports were, of course, great publicity for a night out. And it's also entirely possible that the beauty competition suggestion hadn't come from a playgoer, but had been planted in the press by a publicist for JCW. But it was also too late to stage a contest then and there. However, up in Sydney at the end of March 1922, the Evening News announced its own beauty competition. Putatively, it was to decide the most beautiful girl in New South Wales, but as entrants could come from anywhere in the country, this was pretty much going to crown Australia's most beautiful. The winner would get £100. The same amount would be distributed among 10 runners-up. Entry was free. All you had to do was send in your photo. Pictures would be judged by an incredibly esteemed panel. 
Julian Ashton, the grand old man of the arts, had been active in Australian painting for close to half a century. John Longstaff, prolific painter who'd shot to fame in his youth with his 1887 painting Breaking the News, was to go on to win the Archibald Prize five times. George Lambert was well known as one of Australia's leading war artists, particularly celebrated for his paintings of diggers in Palestine. Finally, there was Lionel Lindsay, Norman's brother, famed in his own right for his etching work and then on the staff of the Evening News. With the beauty competition announced, photos started flooding in. Dozens, then hundreds. The Evening News ran reminders every day. Seeing a publicity opportunity, Ashby's photographic studios in the city advertised free sittings for any girl who wished to enter. Right at this time, an American cad wrote to the Sun newspaper in Sydney to say that he was very unimpressed by Australian womanhood. Here's a sample of his letter. Quote, Why, American women are the most beautiful in the world, and, mind you, all quite natural. None of your paint and powder beauty, or padded hips, chest, and etc., not forgetting the wearing of thick knitted stockings to give the legs some fatness. Your women folk are a very poor sample. In case the Sun readers weren't picking up what he was putting down about Australian ladies being poorly dressed, skinny-armed and pancake-chested, this American fiend continued, quote, Your women folk are, to express it mildly, very ugly, with complexions like backwoodsmen or prairie workers. Our women folk are graceful, beautiful, with faces like ripe peaches, naturally coloured and with figures that could outstrip any women of the world. There was much, much more and every bit of it was insulting. Predictably, the sun was filled with patriotic howls of outrage about this slur on our stunning Sheila Hood. But the ultimate proof of Australian beauty came a week later with three photos of lovely local ladies. The central image, a cream-skinned, golden-haired babe with a bauble-decorated satin headband in true flapper fashion, had been sent in by that Sydney photographic studio, Ashby's. Theatre-goers who happened to read The Sun might have recognised her as Eve Grey. Thing was, though, Ashby's had an even more fetching portrait of Eve from that same set of pictures. One that might win a bigger prize than simply shutting down some obstreperous yank. In fact, for a year now, that picture of Eve Grey had been on display in Ashby's shop window in King Street. The story would go that Ashby's contacted Eve in Melbourne, where she was performing in a night out, and asked permission to enter her photo. She said yes, and thought no more of it. But Ashby's entering Eve's photo was to change her life. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. When the evening news competition closed in mid April, it said that its bulging mailbags had delivered a galaxy of beauty. They'd received more than 2,000 entries from girls of every known type. Now the judges really had their work cut out for them. Of course, the competition's ultimate aim wasn't to crown the most beautiful girl. From the publisher's perspective, it was to give the evening news the biggest circulation boost possible. And now the genius move was that the paper's readers would get to play along. Not in the judging, 
that was to be left to the four eminent artists. But if you could read the judges' minds and select in correct order the girls they'd choose for first, second and third, then you'd win £50. And 50 more readers who came close would get £1 consolation prizes. The paper told readers, Watch the news every night for details. The beauties will be in soon. That they would. Nearly 100 of them from the competition long list. That first day, Monday 1st of May, the paper ran the photos of nine entrants. And then day after day, they ran more batches of beauties. To have a chance at winning the £50, you'd have to see all of the girls. And to see all of the girls, you'd have to buy each day's paper at the price of a penny and a half. Then you'd have to buy the issue of the paper that contained the official voting form. 50,000 people would do this, representing a good boost to the evening news's circulation. Behind the scenes, Messieurs Ashton, Longstaff, Lambert and Lindsay had been pouring and pawing over the entrant photos and they'd come up with a shortlist. But now they needed to see these girls in person. As one of the chosen few, Eve Gray, who was now treading the boards in Melbourne in a show called You're in Love, was summoned to Sydney. In the third week of May, she made a mad train dash to the Harbour City, endured being poked and prodded by the old artists, and then raced back to Melbourne. Eve's sudden whirlwind journey hadn't gone unnoticed by Keith Murdoch and his minions at Melbourne's The Herald newspaper. He'd either heard or simply decided that Eve Gray was going to win the Evening News' competition. Keith Murdoch, who was right then on his own circulation high thanks to a sensational child murder that had seen the Herald hound wrongfully convicted Colin Campbell Ross to the hangman, reckoned the whole competition caper was worth a spoiler. So he sent a journalist out to break the news to Eve. Needless to say, Eve was gobsmacked. The Herald man asked, what she was going to do with the £100 prize money. The surprised Eve replied, quote, I don't know what I shall do with the money. I've really not thought about it yet. Probably I'll do something very dull, buy land or put it in the bank. Or it may all go in tram fares or something equally unromantic. While he was at the theatre, the Herald man also grabbed a quote from Maud Fane, the English actress who was then sharing the stage with Eve. Maud Fane said, quote, Eve has more beauty and charm of personality than Mary Pickford and Mary Miles Minter put together. If she were in America, her future would be made as a screen star. These quotes, along with Eve's description, her English background and her basic career details, appeared in the Herald alongside her Ashby's portrait under the headline, Wins Beauty Competition. Keith Murdoch also used Eve's win as a justification to launch his own search for a Victorian woman who would be even more fetching. A beauty state of origin, if you like. Up in Sydney, The Sun, which was the afternoon rival to the evening news, was absolutely delighted at Murdoch's spoiler. It dug out its photo of Eve from the previous month and gave it another run as part of a story about this newspaper skullduggery. That gave it an excuse to reprint the Herald story pretty much in its entirety. The poor evening news tried damage control. Its managing editor claimed to The Sun that the result wasn't yet decided. And he even wired Murdoch to say, withdraw the statement. Yep, good luck with that. The evening newsman claimed that Eve had only been in Sydney so that judges could get a better look at her. This wasn't at all convincing, 
not least because the son had also learned from Eve herself that John Longstaff, one of the four judges, had offered to paint her and she'd agreed to sit for him. Anyway, on the 28th of May, the evening news announced that, yes, Eve Grey had, after all, won their competition. Later, there would be mutterings that the whole thing had been a setup to promote the Sydney season of JCW's A Night Out. Was that the case? I don't know. But such competitions were regularly used this way, and A Night Out was set to start in just a week's time, so it is possible it was some sort of tie-in. Eve's win certainly wasn't going to hurt its box office. In fact, the reverse. The Evening News also ran an interview with Eve that showed just how JCW's representatives were treating her like their property. In Melbourne, Mr Finkelstein, the company's publicity manager, took the Evening News reporter to his office and opened the door saying, quote, This is Miss Eve Gray, the young lady of whom we have been talking. Don't you think she's nice? The reporter did. Quote, a pair of grey-blue eyes looked out from a face modelled on exquisite lines. A mop of fair hair just showed from beneath a dainty straw hat and a perfect set of teeth was revealed when she smiled. It was, he wrote, quote, quite easy to understand how the judges reached the decision that she was the loveliest among 10,000 and fairer than them all. The reporter told readers that Eve was new to being interviewed and that she was nervous. Quote, she was refreshingly ingenuous and girlish, though obviously very tired, after a hurried and long railway journey from Sydney, whither she had to appear before the competition judges. While they spoke, Mr Finkelstein hovered, and he abruptly made Eve stand against a wall so the reporter could confirm she stood five foot five. Mr Finkelstein also tried to take credit for her discovery and her newfound celebrity. Quote, during the first performance of A Night Out at Her Majesty's Theatre, I was standing in the prompt corner when this girl came on. Her vivid, vital beauty came upon me like a flash of light. This claim was quite bizarre, given she'd already been cast in the show and would have spent weeks rehearsing. Nevertheless, Mr Finkelstein continued, quote, It occurred to me then that something might be done to give Miss Grey proper public notice. It was my pleasure and privilege to be in a position to give Miss Grey a fair share of the publicity due to her as the loveliest little lady I had ever set eyes on. When Eve got a chance to speak, she explained how Ashby's had submitted her photo and she'd not thought it'd lead anywhere. She told the Evening News reporter that she liked musical comedy work best of all and that she intended to make a study of singing. Eve said she adored surf bathing which was what ocean swimming was then called, and she also enjoyed riding horses. Had she been trained or intended for the stage? She responded, quote, No, but I always had a desire to face the footlights. So when the chance came to be in the chorus of one of the Williamson shows, I joined up. Everyone was jolly good to me, and the girls are just lovely. My success will please them immensely. The evening newsman wanted to know what lay in Eve's future. She replied, quote, well, that of course is uncertain, but my ambition is to make my name on the stage. Perhaps she wanted to be in the movies? Eve replied, quote, I don't think so. There seems to me an excellent chance for any girl who can sing and act on the Australian stage. You mentioned the pictures. Certainly, large sums seem to be paid to clever women, but then, at Los Angeles, for instance, there are a lot of beautiful and brainy girls who would stand a better chance than an Australian girl. 
On this point, the interviewer said that she did resemble Enid Bennett, a former JCW star who'd recently made it big in Hollywood. Eve replied, quote, So I have been told. She certainly is lovely and clever. As to going to America, I don't think I shall do so unless some very definite proposition is made. So the Australian stage was enough of an inducement to stay? Eve thought it was. Quote, if a girl can make good, she should do just as well here as elsewhere. The Evening News, as sponsor of the competition, positively gushed about Eve Grey. Quote, she has the swing and sprightliness of youth and is a picture of perfect health. To know her is to admire her and her friendship is a good and wholesome thing. Further, she was, quote, well-educated and extremely observant, a bright and lovable companion. Her observations on human nature as she walks and talks reveal a surprising understanding of what people are thinking and saying. And with that, she is perfectly natural and unaffected. She dresses quietly and gracefully and wears very little jewellery. A careful and wide reader, she has acquired deep things of life and has a knowledge of languages and ethical subjects. With the interview over, Eve had to get ready for the matinee of You're in Love. So, with a dainty bow and a word of thanks, off she went. Three days after the official announcement in the evening news, the paper ran a front-page three-part headline with a quote claiming, I saw her first, before asking, Who discovered Eve Grey? And answering, Many claim honour. Mr Finkelstein, the paper said, had been taking far more credit than was due. Mr Pratt, Sydney publicity manager for JCW, said that six months ago he'd been looking through all the beautiful girls on their books and he'd been the one to persuade Eve to enter the competition. He sniffed, these are the actual facts. Meanwhile, a reader of the Evening News wrote to say that he used to ride the same tram as Eve each morning and he'd been struck by her beauty then. Quote, I remember speaking one morning to a friend who was travelling on the same tram and telling him that if this girl had been in the United States, her face would have been worth a fortune to her in the moving picture business. Tivoli Theatres also laid claim to Eve, saying they'd brought her down from Brisbane to Sydney under contract. And of course, Huge Deal Scout reckoned he'd seen her in Brisbane and been responsible for setting her whole career in motion. Everyone wanted credit for Eve. For the record, Eve would tell the Sunday Times that she felt she owed everything to Huge Deal because he'd been the one who gave her the featured dance in Bran Pie back in 1920. In the wake of the beauty competition win, Eve's newfound fame meant she was a focus in the Sydney production of A Night Out, even though she was a minor player. The Evening News on the 5th of June reported, quote, Everybody looked hard at Eve Grey after the storm of applause welcomed the news beauty competition winner. Under the concentrated gaze of several thousand critical female eyes, the little fair-haired beauty came through with honours. The Sunday News gave over part of its coverage of the show to how Eve looked, what she wore, and how the audience almost stopped the show when pointing her out. Truth reviewed Eve's looks and her talent and found both a bit unconvincing. Quote, Interest was manifested in the appearance of Miss Eve Grey, advertised beauty. She has a winsomely pretty face, a rather attenuated figure, and gifts at present rather attenuated. On a broad estimate of beauty, Miss Winnie Tate would run her perilously close. Eve's celebrity as Australia's most beautiful girl had made her a showstopper. The Sunday Times made it clear that she wasn't comfortable with this sort of attention, calling her, quote, 
the much embarrassed winner of the recent beauty competition. As an actress, Eve did find it disconcerting. Surely though, all of the hullabaloo would die down soon. But it didn't. Not least because the evening news was determined to wring every circulation penny it could out of their discovery. Eve was soon getting so much fan mail, she was reported to be considering a private secretary just to deal with it all. Once a day, a big sack of letters would arrive at Her Majesty's Theatre, and then later in the afternoon, another big bundle would be forwarded from the offices of the Evening News. Among the letters, there were a lot of marriage proposals. On the 9th of June, Eve, nervous and embarrassed at being, quote, probably the most talked-of woman in New South Wales, received her £100 winner's cheque at the Sydney Town Hall during a cinema trades exhibition. From the stage, the president of the show objectified Eve as, quote, the most unique item in the exhibition program. Then, Sir Thomas Hughes, chairman of the Evening News, escorted the blushing beauty up to the platform. He said that the eminent judge's verdict in the competition was, quote, not only unchallenged, but unchallengeable. Presenting Eve, he told the crowd, you can judge this for yourselves. There was thunderous applause. Eve was too nervous to say anything. So the Evening News' managing editor spoke on her behalf. The paper reported, quote, When Miss Gray left the platform, she became the centre of an admiring and congratulating crowd. She was cheered when she left the hall. This response from movie men was sure to result in a transition from stage to screen, or that was what the Evening News proclaimed. Quote, The future of Miss Eve Gray is assured. The demure little artist, whose beauty and genius have been hidden in the background until the Evening News beauty competition discovered her, has been adjudged by those at the head of the cinematograph industry to possess a film face. Big things are predicted for her in the photoplay profession. Haymarket Theatres had already invited her to pose for the motion picture camera. While Eve would later say that this experience was something of an ordeal, the Evening News claimed that this, quote, blonde bundle of vivacity had been an absolute natural in front of the cranking camera. Quote, alluring in a beautiful evening gown and radiantly lovely in her street attire and gorgeous furs, this little girl remained calm and unaffected. Then, around two in the afternoon, on Monday the 19th of June, Eve arrived at the Haymarket Theatre and was met by that huge crowd. As the Evening News reported, quote, Miss Gray's appearance was accompanied by scenes of the wildest enthusiasm. When she arrived at the theatre, the crowd stretched right across the street. The theatre had been filled since 1.30, and those in the street, in their anxiety to get a glimpse of the famous beauty, crowded round to such an extent that people became afraid that she would be injured. However, she was taken in the arms of a burly man and carried through the cheering crowd to the theatre. Inside, there was more wild cheering, so much that the management said they'd never seen anything like it at their venue. It would appear that the movies have found another star. If you believe the newspapers, Eve Grey was living a fairy tale. Plucked from obscurity, celebrated as Australia's most beautiful, promoted in a hit stage show and now destined for the silver screen. All was happiness and light. But Eve, for the past month, had been experiencing the dark side of fame. It had started with the judging process, 
where she'd been treated like a prize animal. Then there'd been the relentless attentions of reporters and photographers whose processes stripped away any excitement and glamour. Next, there was the public who felt empowered to stare at her wherever she went, to come up to her and ask if she was really Eve Grey, and then to openly and loudly criticise her looks and talents. Now, at the Haymarket Theatre, there were thousands of people just like this. People who would have passed her by on the street just a month ago. People who now, in their excitement, might very well have crushed the life out of her. Eve wanted to be famous as an actress. Now, she was famous for being famous. As she'd soon write, quote, I found myself caught up in a whirl of publicity that was exciting at first and then became a nightmare. She continued, Everywhere I go, I have the uneasy feeling that I can't be natural. I'm not a person. I'm Eve Grey, public property. Despite this, Eve Grey wasn't about to give up. She was determined to prove to the public and to the papers what she already knew, that Eve Grey was much more than just a pretty face. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part one of the two-part Forgotten Australia episode, More Than Australia's Most Beautiful Girl. If you'd like to hear part two right now, become a Patreon supporter for as little as three bucks a month. You'll also get access to a gallery filled with amazing photos of Eve Grey. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, and this link is also in your show notes. Part two of this episode will go on general release later this week. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.